On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the trial, the murder trial that just wrapped up in Hamilton on Wednesday. Not guilty was the verdict for Dale King, but the question, as covered by Nicole O'Reilly from The Spectator in her story about what the jury didn't hear, is that why didn't they hear some of these things? And what's really interesting about this is that one of the reasons the judge cited, based on law, mind you, the judge wasn't making it up out of the blue, is that part of the reason was because the accused was indigenous and those things, that is to be considered as far as decisions that are made. Should they be? What does that mean? We're going to talk about that one. Also, there is a thing, there was another murder, another, well, it was a killing. It wasn't a murder because the man pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but it was the result of something called cannabis-induced psychosis. And I thought this was a really weird thing to hear about. And then I started looking around and it's not all that weird. I mean, it's unique, but this has been cited in other places. What is cannabis-induced psychosis? And more more importantly, is this something that we should be aware of now that cannabis is legal in this country? Can other people be impacted by this drug? Well, we'll talk about that too, right here, coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This afternoon, probably about two hours ago, Dale King was acquitted of a charge of second-degree murder. He, of course, had been charged in the fatal shooting of Yusuf al-Haznawi almost two years to the day from now. You'll remember that case mostly probably because that's the case where the two paramedics have been charged for being accused of not responding quickly enough, not jumping into action, maybe thinking al-Haznawi was faking, whatever they're Anyway, that that's the case. Uh, it was a shooting. It was outside a convenience store where Al-Haznawi was stepping in to help an elderly gentleman, apparently, and ended up being shot and killed. It's not so much that he was acquitted today that has people talking. A- acquittals happen with regularity. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I guess that's the, uh, that's the way you can look at it, even in criminal courts, but it's some of the stuff that was not allowed to be entered as evidence in court that has people talking. Nicole O'Reilly from The Spectator wrote a piece yesterday. It went online once the jury went into sequestration so they could no longer see anything. And the stuff that was talked about in court while they were out of court was able to finally be published. Let me just read you the first couple paragraphs of the story that she wrote yesterday. Again, it's on thespec.com. You can read the entire thing. Here it is. Before being charged with second-degree murder, Dale King was convicted five times of assault. This included assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. But members of the jury who began their deliberations Tuesday in the fatal shooting death of Yosef al-Haznawi never heard about these convictions. They were ruled inadmissible by Superior Court Justice Andrew Goodman in part, and this is the part that I think a lot of people, and I'm hearing a lot of people are cocking an eyebrow at, They were ruled inadmissible by Superior Court Justice Andrew Goodman in part because King is Indigenous. What happened to the law being blind, to justice being blind? Everybody is the same under the law. Well, let me bring in Peter Bushy, who is a former head of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. He is a lawyer active here in town. He joins us now. Peter, thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. I, I was uh, head of the uh, Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association about five years ago. But, okay. Uh, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, this is one of those things when, when people see this that I've heard a number of people say, I, I'm not quite sure I'm understanding this. Justice is supposed to be blind. Everyone is supposed to get the same treatment. 
Uh, your past behavior, if it's relevant to a case like this, regardless of who you are or where you are or what you are, should be equal. So how do we have cases where judges now are ruling certain things inadmissible, at least in part because of your race or lineage or heritage or whatever, however you want to describe it? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We actually discussed something along these lines about a year ago when it came to challenges uh, for cause. There's, the courts have taken judicial notice of uh, systemic racism and the uh, horrors of colonialism, in, in, in particular as against or involving Indigenous uh, people or First Nations. In fact, uh, it's actually encoded in, in the criminal code that... Um, one needs to take into consideration the uh, the indigenous background of, of an accused person. So it's primarily because of our history, you know, at least here in, in, in Canada in the last couple of hundred years, and the and the devastation wrought on the First Nations people by you know uh, the colonialists that the law has adapted. Um, has adopted has adopted to that. So there's this whole notion of intergenerational trauma, for example. But the, the case law is pretty clear that when it comes to the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the um, in in the penitentiaries and the reformatories, uh, and in light of their history and a sad history of that, that the courts have to be sensitive to that. And I think that's all that Justice Goodman was doing. He was being sensitive. To the background of the uh, of the uh, accused, as as the courts should and are entitled uh, to do. Now, whether that you know concerns uh, or relates to certain unfairness in the trial system is another is a whole other question. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about the Dale King verdict from today. Dale King today was acquitted of the second-degree murder of Yosif al-Haznawi. That was the one involving the paramedics who have also been charged as the killing almost two years to the day, December the 2nd, 2017. And we're talking with defense lawyer, local defense lawyer Peter Bushi about this because one of the things that has a lot of people talking is that five assault, five previous assault convictions were not allowed to be entered as evidence to show a pattern, I guess, uh, in part because the judge said that King, well, not he didn't say, he decided because King is Indigenous, this would be wrong to do this, at least in part. And Peter, just before the break, I was saying, look, many of the people who live in that area of town, regardless of what race or color or creed or religion or whatever, would, could probably make the same case that they have had a very, very difficult upbringing. So why specifically this for Indigenous defendants? Okay, excellent question, but just, uh, just a minor correction, uh, Scott. My understanding, reading um, is... Uh, Riley's article in the spec uh, yesterday <clears throat> that was printed yesterday was that only one out of those four assault convictions um, uh, were not left with the jury because of the indigenous factor. Uh, my understanding of the article is that the remaining four assault convictions uh, of Dale King uh, were not left with the jury pursuant to a corporate application uh, based on you know standard corporate reasoning, and, and, and that Justice Goodman only left one of the assault convictions uh, uh, from, the, from the jury because of the Indigenous factor. So it was just, it was just that one assault conviction that uh, the Indigenous background of the accused was taken into consideration. 
So in other words, any other accused person, notwithstanding the person's, you know, race, uh, would have probably had four of the five assault convictions um, excised from the accused criminal record. So it, it, in that case, it's not, it's not uh, excessively exceptional. Okay, so but we do have this this um, in, in, what do we want to call it the indigenous factor in this because this also played a role early in the trial, even at the very right. beginning before it got started. You you tweeted right. about this when this was getting started because right. there, was, there was there de- was a decision made as well about peremptory ch- choices or peremptory exclusions right. of jury members. Be, explain why what the indigenous part had to do with that. Okay, okay, this is this is. The indigenous issue, okay, is actually um, encoded in statute in the criminal code. So, for example, under Section 718.2 of the criminal code, when a judge is deciding whether to give, you know, someone uh, prison or not, it's actually um, encoded uh, in in the criminal code. Uh, It's actually in the statute that all available sanctions other than imprisonment uh, should be meted out that are reasonable in the circumstances and consistent with the harm done to the victims or the community. Uh, but that should be considered for all offenders with particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal offenders. So it's actually in the criminal code that we uh, make a particular exception um, in terms of how we assess imprisonment um, when it comes to um, uh, Indigenous offenders. And it's actually in the in in, in our case law. So if someone has an issue with, um, you know, increased sensitivity to an accused person, uh, say, for example, when sentencing that accused person, then that should be taken up in the uh, with your local member of parliament because this is uh, a statute in our criminal code that passed third reading, you know, in the House of Commons years ago and was, uh, was confirmed at the Senate. In our criminal code, and and I and yeah, you know. Peter, I I look, I I'm, I'm I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, I would agree wholeheartedly with the idea of this being considered in sentencing. That if you have had some um, extraordinary circumstance that would explain or or may cause you to have done something, uh, I would absolutely say that should be considered in sentencing. My question is. In making the decision about guilt or innocence, is that the appropriate place for that to be entered or not entered as evidence? Okay, another, again, Scott, you, you should have gone to law school. These are excellent questions. <laughs> These are excellent questions. I could never have oh, got into law school, Peter. Oh, please, oh, please. <laughs> Maybe as a mature student, I w- I, we would have written a reference for you. Okay, but listen, listen for just one second. So the whole point of a jury trial, right, or a, a, a trial before a judge alone, you person's presumed innocent, the accused is presumed innocent, and he has a right to a fair trial, right? So there's actually, you know, in our charter, Section 11D uh, speaks to the presumption of innocence and how a person's entitled to um, a fair and impartial uh, uh, trial uh, uh, in law before, uh, before a hearing or an independent and impartial tribunal. So you want the accused person, we all want the accused person to have a fair trial. We'd hate to see the trial of fact, in this case a jury, come to a conclusion based on, you know, the, the forbidden reasoning, like the bad feelings of an accused person. So for example, on accused so for example, 
if someone's charged with murder, say, and he has a murder conviction on his criminal record, right, and it's remote in time, right, how fair do you think the jury is going to assess the case at hand when they know that the person's been previously convicted of murder? Probably not too fairly, because you want people to judge the case on the facts that's presented. And this comes to the next point. And this is what, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, sort of non-lawyers um, aren't familiar with, and that is this. When a jury hears someone's criminal record, right, the only purpose they can use this criminal record is to assess the accused's credibility. They are specifically forbidden, it's called forbidden reasoning, from using someone's criminal record and then concluding that person's a bad person. Because of what they've done in the past. Okay, yep. And, and therefore, because he's a bad person, well, he must have committed this crime. We don't want convictions based on that reasoning. It's called forbidden reasoning. And so, so normally what happens is defense lawyers will bring all these Corbett applications at the conclusion of the Crown's case to ask the judge to excise, right, take out, any convictions that actually don't speak to matters of credibility. Peter, I, I, I hate to do this. Peter, I hate to do this, but I've got to jump in. i got to go to a break. But I, listen, I really appreciate the time today. And I, I would encourage everyone to go read Nicole Riley's piece on at thespec.com. Peter, thanks for taking the time. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was reading a story the other day, uh, and i got to tell you, it's a little gruesome. So brace yourself. In fact, it's more than a little gruesome. It's very gruesome. It's a story about a 31-year-old in Muskoka who stabbed his 67-year-old father multiple times and then beheaded him, after which he grabbed the head and started running along the beach and eventually threw it in the water before being arrested event- finally by police. It is a horrible, ghastly, disgusting story. Not surprisingly, the act was described as horrific and unusually brutal. Well, this week, this guy entered a plea to manslaughter. And you're thinking, wait a second, manslaughter is generally a category for someone who would cause a death of someone without real intent, but with a knowledge that maybe what they were doing could lead to a death. So how could someone possibly stab and behead someone without intending to do it? Well, here's where the story gets fascinating and a little confusing and possibly a little troubling. The guilty man was said to be suffering from cannabis-induced psychosis. Now, I had not heard of this before, so I started Googling it found a few things. In 2017, there was a case in Colorado in which a guy high on edibles killed his wife. 2017, another one in 2017, there was a case in Edmonton in which a guy who'd smoked cannabis slaughtered his mother. There were others, actually a whole lot of other ones, not all murders, but there was a recent op-ed in the New York Times pointing to FBI numbers that show a sharp increase in violent crime in states that legalized cannabis so what is going on? Is this reefer madness again, or is there actually something to this cannabis-induced psychosis? Dr. Gary Shamovitz is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. He's also the head of forensic psychiatry at St. Joseph's Healthcare. And if I read all of his resume to you, we would be here for the entire segment. I won't do it. Needless to say, it is long and it is rich. He joins us now. Dr. Shamovitz, thanks for taking the time today. Oh, hi, Scott. How are you doing? Is uh, very well, thank you. Um, but I, I, I got to tell you, when I first heard this, I thought, okay, this is lawyer speak. This is a bunch of lawyers who are finding a convenient explanation. But then there's so many of them. Is this truly a legitimate defense? Is there such a thing as cannabis-induced psychosis? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, and, and, and Scott, this is this isn't new. Um, drug-induced and marijuana-induced psychosis 
um, has been known to medicine uh, for forever. Um, what's different, of course, is now that marijuana is legalized. But this is this is not a new or surprising construct. Well, okay, um, except for the fact, I suppose, for the average person who has been told now for the last number of months or years or whatever that marijuana, that cannabis is harmless, essentially. Right, and then that's, and that's obviously um, not exactly true. And, and um, you know, in, in, in the House of Medicine, we've been really concerned um, about the impact of legalizing marijuana um, given, certainly from a psychiatry perspective, the potential for psychosis and vulnerable individuals. So, you know, it's something we've seen before, and unfortunately, uh, we're seeing more of that now, and we're seeing more of that uh, from people who are actually buying in, in, in legal, you know, legal outlets, which is obviously a, somewhat ironic. All right, you, you use the word vulnerable. I'm assuming, uh, and again, I don't want to turn this into reefer madness, I'm assuming that not everybody who ingest cannabis, whether by edibles or smoking, is has the potential to snap into this psychosis. So who are the vulnerable people? So, so, so the, the bottom line is we don't really know, but it does seem that some people who have other psychological difficulties may be a little bit more vulnerable um, to becoming psychotic using marijuana. But the problem is you, you, you don't know for sure. So there are some people who, for no reason, um, stable, otherwise quite well from a psychological perspective, uh, will smoke marijuana in reasonable amounts and will become psychotic. So it is a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a roulette, Russian roulette with, uh, with, uh, with marijuana. And yet we do know, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we do know that those who are, am I correct, prone to schizophrenia or some other things, it can have a greater impact on. Right, right. So there's some some people who have major mental disorders, uh, some people living with schizophrenia, uh, but maybe living with bipolar disorder, who have probably a little bit more vulnerable or more vulnerable to the effects um, of marijuana. But it doesn't mean that everybody who smokes marijuana is going to become psychotic. Of course. Without the diagnosis. So it's a bit of it's a bit of a wild west out there. You just don't know. And I suppose the irony and, and one of the things when you read stories like this, and again, these are, they're not wildly unusual, but they're still unusual in the grand scheme of things. But one of the ironies is that m- a lot of people who may have issues, whether it's psychological or otherwise, seem to be being told, hey, you know what, cannabis is a great idea. It's a great opportunity to try and help yourself, which may in fact, I suppose, be true in some cases, but maybe the opposite of truth in other cases. You know, and obviously, it's, this is a very small number of people who who might become psychotic. But you know what? Um, it's not it's not unheard of. It's something, and certainly in my field, I see a fair amount of. Um, and and people just don't know. And I I would say the tough question, the question we're going to be struggling with is, what happens when you're you go into a store, government sanctioned store, buy government-sanctioned product become psychotic and commit an offense. Where's, where's the responsibility there? So I think we're, we're, we're into a bit of a new era with this, um, unfortunately. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about something called cannabis-induced psychosis. It was stemming from a story 
from Muskoka, there was a criminal case that just led to a manslaughter conviction the other day because of a guy who had taken and used cannabis and went into a psychosis, killed his father brutally, and otherwise apparently was a very normal, very sympathetic, very empathetic, very kind person who just was unable, didn't know what he was doing. Talking with Dr. Gary Shimovitz, who is the head of forensic psychiatry at St. Joseph's Healthcare. And doctor, um, I am wondering, you were just before the break, you were talking that we don't really know who this will affect, that it could be people with schizophrenia or, or leanings that way, or it could be others. Does this work essentially like an allergy? If I have a, a severe shellfish allergy and I eat a piece of shellfish, I have a reaction immediately. Is it the same that you, you only find out and um, if you use it and you find out immediately if you use it? So, so I just wanted to say, um, because I know we, you, your lead-in was um, this, this tragic case um, in, in uh, north of here. Um, look, pe- people who become psychotic uh, don't usually do what was described in the, in the, in the of course. case. Not, n- nonetheless, we don't know who, when you smoke or use marijuana, who is going to become psychotic? So this is not, you know, like drinking. You drink, you drink more. You, 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 you obviously you become a bit. You might become a bit more aggressive. You might essentially not be as conscious of what you're doing. For some people, you smoke marijuana, and it's not a dose-related thing. It is you flip into or change into a situation where essentially you're out of touch with reality and things are happening to you. Um, and there's some elements to this. I mean, some people will argue that the, the increased potency of the marijuana that's available today um, may impact more people and be a bit more severe in its effect. And you and you hear a lot of people who have smoked marijuana 20, 30 years ago will try and buy some of the new stuff and they'll tell you they uh, become a little bit uncomfortable with it because they have unusual uh, effects. So... It's a bit of a dose-related effect, but there's also a potency-related effect, but it, it, it also could be um, somebody who just uses and, for whatever reason, loses touch with reality. Is it a constant? Again, is it similar to an allergy in that if you've had this lack of a connection with reality, is it going to happen again, or can it be a one-off? Um, look, it could be a one-off, but we what we know is that... Uh, if this happens to you, you're likely to. It's like it's likely to happen again the next time you use the product. So, doctor, is there anything then? I mean, this is we, we've just legalized this product roughly a year ago. Is there anything that we that I, that you know of within our system that would say, okay, let's say Bob was somebody who's had a reaction. He's had a psychosis of some kind because of this. Is there any way to put them on a list to tell the the legal dispensaries not to sell to that person? Well, I mean, I think that. That, that that idea um, probably is, a, is is probably a little uh, on the draconian side. I would say that there, I mean there's some concerns that medicine psychiatrists had about um, the use of legalizing of marijuana, and it's not just the psychosis; it's the potential for uh, increasing the rates, for instance, of schizophrenia. And there's some evidence to suggest that it affects young minds. Okay, and it, and it, and and it later may lead to an increased incidence. We don't know the answers to that, um, but there's, there are some signals suggesting that may be the case, and so affecting vulnerable minds. I, I think I think the consumers need to just be aware, and if you're aware, um, if you start experiencing unusual effects, or your family or friends notice something, that 
you know, you, just, you, you take this really seriously. It's essentially the equivalent of having a black box warning um, mm. that bear in mind this could happen. And then hopefully if it does happen, um, somebody will bring you to the attention of, uh, of the appropriate medical authorities. Do, do we know as much or more or less about the effects of cannabis once it was legalized than we would about most other pharmaceutical drugs that we would have available to us now? So, so I think I think what, what I mean there are pros and cons for everything, and I think that one of, on the pro side, um, we have a lot more people legally studying um, marijuana, cannabis, cannabinoids, the whole the whole um, collection of chemicals associated with this. For instance, so we at St. Joe's in partnership with McMaster, the Borough Center, and we're we've got a number of experts looking at the impact. Both, both positives and negatives um, of, of cannabis um, on the general population. And, and there are centers around the country, around the world, doing the same thing. Um, so so, so we're, we're beginning to tease out what it can do for you and what it can do to you. Um, so I think, I think we've, we're, we're moving in the right direction in terms of trying to nail this. But, boy, I think, uh, I think the consumer um, is probably really unaware of some of the psychological risks attached to us seeking uh, products such as this. It is a it is a fascinating topic, and uh, listen, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today with us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Take it easy. Uh, Doctor Gary Shamowitz, uh, again, the head of forensic psychiatry at Saint Joseph's Healthcare. Again, I, I'm not trying to be reefer madness about this. The point simply is that there are people who probably this is not ideal for. Clearly, it's not ideal for some. And I don't know that we've made the case or even are listening to the case that, you know what, not everybody should just say, ah, it's legal, great, do it. It's a little more complicated than that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.